The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to the second part of our special two-part episode of Exploring Different Brains. What we're doing is we're taking the highlights of the amazing interviews of 2017 with neurodiversity leaders from all over the world. And in this second part, we're going to bring you parents, advocates, specialists, experts from all around the globe to tell us their approach to different brains. We're going to start out with Dr. Christopher Stout, who has helped people all over the world. Quote, health is perhaps the most common denominator in a region's potential for success as it is so intertwined with economic sustainability, eradicating poverty, preventing war, mitigating violence, and fostering social prosperity. Can you expound upon that in terms of acceptance of mental health and everything we're talking about here? I had worked at the United Nations uh, 1998-1999 and one of the things that I worked on was the, the aspect of looking at mental health and substance abuse vis-a-vis -vis sustainable development. And sort of the argument or the thesis that I had in that, which relates back to the quote that you very generously used, was uh, that if you, if without mental health there is no health, so to speak, that issues of, you can be, um, the needing this kind of assistance regardless of whatever kind of circumstance you're in and if you're not getting that it's going to be hard to be a good parent it's going to be hard to be a good worker it's going to be hard to be a good contributor to your community or to your tribe or whatever and it makes it really ironically i think a, a fundamental aspect of being successful in every other aspect of one's life even if you're you know biologically so to speak or physically fit or healthy, if you, you know, are suffering with debilitating chronic clinical depression, you're not going to be able to go work. You're not going to be able to support a family. Dr. Bankole Johnson. It's really very curious, and I think it dates back to a few hundred years, whereby people tried to separate the mind from the body, in some way as if there were two components of a system that never really talked about another. And this mind was meant to be some higher order type of cognitive thinking. And the body was meant to be basically the mechanics. And they were not connected. So when you go and see someone because you have a mental health issue, people believe that it must be due to something to do with this nebulous concept of a mind. And that it's somehow your responsibility while you're ill, or at least partially your responsibility, and it has nothing to do with your body. Well, we now know that this is completely incorrect. The brain is the most complex organ in the, uh, in the universe. It has connections with your heart. It has connections with basic, almost everything else. And to give your friend the heart analogy, we now know that individuals who have heart disease often also have mental manifestations of that heart disease and brain stress or stress in the brain is also associated with myocardial infarction or cardiac arrest and, and cardiovascular disease. So it's one system. I think some people like to make it simple, but as my professor used to say, it can only be as simple as it really is. <laughs> Denise Resnick. 
for most of us, we've had options as our lives have changed, as we've learned, as we've become employed, as we've had, you know, have been married and, and had a life. And, um, and so we, we want more options for people, for where they go after they leave their family home, and then to allow them to grow, to set the bar much higher than it was set for me and for our family when we were told 24 years ago to plan to love, accept, and institutionalize our son because there's no hope for people with autism. And I committed back then, and I remain committed now, that that is not the option, the only option for people with autism. There are so many more. And um, and we're, we're trying to be an example so that when a child is diagnosed today, we can not only tell that family that they can have a job and a home and friends and a supportive community, we can actually show them. And what a different lifestyle that represents for a family who's just had a diagnosis of autism to set the bar much, much higher than it was set for us. And we all know the difference that hope can make in any of our lives to get out of bed in the morning or get out of the closet or wherever we might be hiding from to recognize that that it is another day. There's more that we can do and that we can all have greater hope for a future. That's what all of us deserve. Dr. Gail Saltz. It's so awful to a parent, it's so stigmatizing and upsetting that to some degree, not consciously, but unconsciously, parents you know, don't notice the symptom because they can't bear the idea that, oh, you know, maybe my child really has whatever it is. Um, I think that if we as a nation could, um, you know, bring brains into the same place as you just pointed out that we bring pancreases and hearts and, and you know, uh, livers and other organs that we don't have a problem talking about or going to the doctor for, that, um, that parents would recognize what is happening with their child and bring them for the treatment that they need. Lynn Minor Rosen. For parents, I think the biggest thing is to realize that ADHD is not their fault. They, they didn't, they're not lazy, they're not stupid, they're wonderful, incredible people that need a boost in self-confidence and they need encouragement and they need positivity. They, their whole life they're getting hurry up, quit, you know, just stop doing that, you know, do something else, what's wrong with you, you, have, you can do this, and they're not given enough positive reinforcement. Denise Karp. I guess the biggest challenge is being able to navigate through the landmines of different people with such strong opinions that they, uh, maybe they don't mean to be uh, nasty or insulting, but when their own belief system is challenged, they, they lash out. So Denise's list is a moderated listserv. That means that I have to approve everything before it goes on. This is the reason why it is still here 15 years later, because otherwise it would, people would have been stalking off in, 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 in just a high anger. Um, that, that is the challenge, keeping everybody civil and not, and not, not distributing those posts that are not. So I have to read every single one of the posts before it gets distributed. Michael Alessandri. You know, who decides what's beneath or above somebody? Right? Every individual with, an, with a disability or not gets to determine where they want to work, how they want to work, where they want to live, how they want to live. It's not up to us to judge that. And I think it's a huge mistake for people to judge something as being too beneath somebody. 
you know, that job is, uh, it could be a final job for someone and that could be absolutely brilliant or it could be a stepping stone to some other job once they have learned some fundamental job skills. But I can tell you in the car wash, um, those young adults with autism that are working there are not only earning a wage for the first time in many cases, they have created social relationships with people in their workplace that they never had before. They are going out together on their own, they're hosting events, not with the owners facilitating or coordinating. They have created a social uh, niche for themselves that they didn't have before. They have developed empathy for their fellow workers. People are, uh, guys are, are, are volunteering to go and pick someone up who might have to take a, two or three buses in order to get there. They would never have done that before in some cases. Dan Habib. You know, I do a lot of my film work is set in schools. And I really think, I, I think teachers work incredibly hard. I have so much respect for them. I mean, we're always asking them to do more and more and more. But I think that one of the ways education is changing that helps the neurodiverse population and, and kids like my son and your child is to do something that's called universal design for learning, which means just like a building can be universally designed so that anybody could get into it, you know, it might have uh, accommodations for people who are blind or deaf, has automatic doors for people that use wheelchairs. Um, education can be that way. There can be a lot of access points. So for instance, when my son in his English class, he has great English teachers, they might assign an assignment to him and they or to the whole class. They might say, listen, you can listen to this. You can watch a video about it. You can do a skit. You can uh, read about it. You can go out, you can go into the community and learn about it that way. So you're giving kids five different ways. So all different kinds of learners can find their passion, their way to do it. And then when it comes time to show what you know, you can write a poem, you know, perform a little a, a dialogue with somebody or skit. You can do a short film, which Samuel often does as his homework assignments. He makes a short video or a film. So I think, I think it's important to give kids in, in the school realm lots of different ways to explore those passions. Because, you know, a kid might think they hate history until they watch that documentary that Ken Burns just made on Vietnam, you know, and say, wow, history is actually fascinating now that I can experience it this way. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.